Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to be back here with you. Uh, if you forgot, my name's Tim. I'm the pastor here, so that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the, the, the most famous rules of thumb that uh, I ever heard, and it's really proven itself to be true, at least for me, is that uh, you only get one chance at a first impression, which Quite honestly, like I said, I, I have always found to be true. And I will be the, the first to admit that I judge a book by its cover, all right? I don't want to. It's just the way that things are. And what I try to remember is that every book needs to be read before you write a review, if you get my drift. Of course, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically here. So, so what I, I mean, if, I, if I've lost you, is regardless of what goes through my mind when I first meet someone, it's important for me to take time to know them before I make a final judgment about who they are, or more importantly, about who I say that God says that they are. Perhaps it's, you know, one of God's funny jokes that a person like me who, who struggles with, with making uh, judgments uh, first, on first impressions, that he would call someone like me a long-haired, tattooed, and pierced person to be a pastor. It's a humble reminder, right, that there was a time... Maybe not too long ago, but I like to think it was a long time ago when a person who presented to the world the way that I do would not be considered for leadership in the church, let alone to be a pastor, right? Maybe some of you remember signs that said, long-haired, freaky people need not apply, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, here I am, <laughs> long-haired, freaky person, and I'm, I got the job. So regardless, regardless of the irony between uh, a person, personality flaw of my own and the way that, you know, I, I am and I present in everyday life, I, I think that we can still agree that first impressions matter. First impressions matter because they, they set the tone for the rest of the relationship. And so I'm not saying that this is right or that this is wrong. I'm just saying that it's reality. It's, it's the way that things are. And I'm going to tell you that it was a reality for the Apostle Paul. He was obviously aware of this fact, which means for us that it's a reality that's as old as time. So that's why we're going to look at some of the ways that Paul introduced himself in his letters to, to various churches around the Roman Empire, most of the books of the New Testament. 
But we're going to find within just the opening verses of these letters are, are actually uh, deep and, and stunning theological truths about who the church is called to be. And it's in these opening salutations, if you will, that Paul introduces himself to the people and often boasts about the reports that he is receiving about the work that they are doing in the world. And so I think it's a seemingly appropriate place for us to really begin our journey together, seeing as I'm only still introducing myself to you. And believe it or not, I've received many reports about the work being done here at First Church. They're all good, so... <laughs> But to start off uh, this week, we're going we're gonna to look at the opening verses of the book of Romans, which is actually the longest of Paul's letters. And it's the first one that you would get to if you were just to flip through your Bible from uh, the beginning to the end. But before we get there and we, and we read it together, I just want to do uh, a, little, a little lesson, like some uh, Bible 101, if you will, about the nature of Paul's letters and some like really key information that's going to help us uh, better read and interpret them over the next uh, few weeks and probably years because I'll preach from them a lot. And so I'm going to put on uh, like a fake professor's cap right now, okay? And uh, if you'll just hang with me for a minute or two as I say some nerdy stuff, okay? So here we go. The first thing that we need to understand, first thing, is that Christianity started out within the larger Jewish faith. The first Christians were Jewish. Here's a secret. Jesus was Jewish. All the disciples were Jewish. And so it would make sense that everyone who followed Jesus at the beginning was also Jewish. And this is important to understand when we read Paul's letters because he often highlights some of the tension that was created when Jewish and non-Jewish Followers of Jesus started to live together in these new Jesus communities that were being formed throughout the rest of the Roman world outside of, of Jerusalem and the center of Judaism. So that's thing number one that we need to know. But there's another really important detail that uh, we're going to have to discuss. And so I'm going to preface this entire discussion that we're about to have by stating this, because I don't want you to, uh, to misunderstand what I'm about to say or misunderstand me and, and what I believe. So I believe, I believe that all of the Bible, all of it, is, inspire, is the inspired word of God and that it is the, the primary and final authority for our faith. That means that, that I believe that every single thing that the Bible teaches, when it's properly interpreted, is the basis on which our, our whole faith, our whole practice, and our whole lives should be modeled. The Bible, for me, is a deep, deep well of truth, a well whose bottom I'll never reach, and likely you won't either. However, even though I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and that it's a deep well of truth, that doesn't mean that the Bible is simple. The Bible is a complex work of art that was crafted over thousands of years. It's, it's like the divine marriage of God's will, ethic, and teaching, along with the voices of countless human authors, editors, and translators to get us this thing written in English that we have today. 
The Bible is a wonderful mystery, and that's why we've been arguing over what it really says for like as long as it's existed. And one of the complexities that we run into very frequently in our study of especially the New Testament is the complexity of genre. What type of literature are we reading? And this particularly comes in when we read, you guessed it, the letters, which make up a major portion of the New Testament, a major portion of how we understand the Christian faith. The problem with letters is that although they seem very straightforward, without understanding some of, of the context in which they are written, we're only getting like half of the story. Well, why half, you ask? Well, because they're only one side of a conversation. They're correspondences that are written to a particular people who we don't have the pleasure of speaking with about particular issues which we can only reconstruct through archaeology, history, and common sense in reading the letter. We don't have all of the details. So in all reality, reading Paul's letters is essentially reading someone else's mail. It's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. However, that doesn't mean we just throw them out. They're still the inspired word of God. They're still a major source of our theology and practice, and they are still God's word for us today. We've just got to do a little bit of work when we try to make sure that these things that we're reading are actually saying what we think they're saying. It's not a big deal. I kind of like it because it forces me to, to slow down, to ask questions, to learn something new. And well, I'm wearing a professor's cap, remember? I like to learn something new. I'm a nerd. All right, so I'm going to take the cap off now, and now I'm just your pastor. And as a pastor who's also a former troublemaker and maybe current troublemaker, I don't know, I have to mention to you that in the United States of America, it is a felony to read someone else's mail. And so it should excite you to read your Bible because it's dangerous, right? If you're a rule follower, just ignore that whole sentence. So... Let's just get into this thing. <laughs> so this is uh, the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. It starts out, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I'm just going to stop right there for a second. It's pretty straightforward. We've got our main man, Paul, right, the chief uh, missionary, the, the head honcho of the mission uh, of God to uh, the, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. He's, he's introducing himself and he's saying, this is who I am and this is who I do, who, what I do. Here's the deal. He's about to work on that first impressions thing that I was talking about earlier. And for, for the Romans, this is going to be more than just like uh, the first impression of this letter that Paul's writing. This is to them, their first impression of Paul at all. Because unlike most of the churches that Paul writes to, Paul did not plant the church in Rome. Paul's not yet been there. So he's saying to them, this is who I am. And he's about to do something that's kind of strange for ancient letter writing in the next few verses. He's going to go on and essentially impress upon them his entire understanding of who Jesus is. So he's already said, hey, I'm Paul. I'm the guy that maybe you've heard some rumors 
about. Uh, I'm that guy. I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm dedicated to the gospel. I'm dedicated to the good news. In my words, Paul's dedicated to the announcement of the reign of God and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. So with that information in mind, hold on to your hats because we're about to go and Paul's about to hit the accelerator pretty quickly. So remember, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. As a mouthful. So here's some smaller bites, right? Verse 2. What Paul says is that this gospel that he's been set apart to proclaim, this gospel, the good news, guess what? It ain't new news. It's not really unexpected. The gospel doesn't begin with Matthew's gospel and the New Testament. This gospel, this good news, this announcement of the reign of God and the coming of the kingdom of heaven, well, it's something that was promised a long time ago through the prophets who wrote the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures, to Paul, at this point in time, doesn't include anything that we now call the New Testament. None of that was written yet. So what Paul means is that the gospel, the the promise that he is proclaiming, well, it's present in your Old Testament. You know, like the really hard part of your Bible to read, the part that many Christians have tried to separate themselves from the, the snooze fest that is the first two-thirds of your Bible. It announces the promise of the gospel that we hold so near and dear. So you got to read it. And I'm really grateful that the gospel is in the Old Testament because I've dedicated like a lot of my life to the Old Testament. I specialized in the Old Testament in biblical Hebrew in seminary. And so, like, I really like it, and I'm really glad that, that Paul doesn't think I wasted a whole bunch of my time. So Paul goes on uh, in verse 3, right? He says, The promise was that a descendant of David, of, of King David, the, the big cheese of, of Israelite history, right? Like the George Washington to our Israel, the one that everyone was hoping that there would be another of. This guy, David, who united the kingdom and ruled over it with faithfulness and justice. Israel was the best that it ever was under David. And so it was only fitting that God's son would come from this particular line of people, a chosen line within a chosen nation. And then verses 4 through 6 The resurrection of Christ has sealed his authority over not just Israel, 
but over people of all nations. The, the term that Paul used is Gentile. It's simply speaking, it just means non-Jewish folks. So the truth that Paul is driving at here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because it announces that Jesus is the authoritative power over all people on this good green earth. Not just Israelites, but all people, including, you've got it, the Romans. You know, the people who nailed him to a cross. You might be thinking, but wait, I thought they were bad guys. Well, not all of them, I guess. In fact, the church in Rome was a vibrant entity. It was at one time entirely made up of ethnic Romans because Jews had been temporarily expelled from the city. But don't take it from me. Listen to Paul's next words. This is who the letter is to. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have it. They're God's beloved. It kind of ends the argument for us. And so, so Paul has now kind of hit us with this like three-part introduction, right? He says, this is who I am. I'm a servant of God. This is who sent me, uh, you know, the ruler of the world, the source of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. You might have heard of him. And this is who you are. You are people who are loved by him. It honestly kind of just reminds me of a sermon that I gave last week. It's all good stuff, but let's move on. Like, what's up here? If, if this is just the beginning, if this is just Paul's introduction of himself, what does he say next? He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing, I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. You know, this is really powerful stuff. Because the faith of the Roman church has kind of like gone viral throughout the Roman Empire. Which on the one hand, it, it makes a lot of sense because, because Rome is the center of the known world at this point. It's, it's the, the capital of the largest, most expansive and mighty empire to have ever ruled the world. There's said to be no place where the arm of Rome did not reach. And so it makes a lot of sense that the growth and the work of the Jesus movement would, come quite, would become quite famous here in Rome. On the other hand, though, we have to look at kind of like, what's at stake here? See, the church was, and still is, seen as a revolutionary movement. I mean, think about it. Just in what Paul has said here, in these opening verses about who Jesus is. Like, think about that. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who reigns in power over all the world. Jesus is our Lord. To us as modern-day Americans, that, that seems like a, a perfectly natural thing to say because we've been saying it for many of us for, for all of our lives, and it's, it's a safe thing to say. But in Rome, in the heart of the empire, within a stone's throw 
of the imperial palace where Caesar lays his head at night, a place where Caesar's eyes and ears are everywhere. To say all of that in this place, and to say it in such a way that you have become infamous is a dangerous road to travel. Because to Rome, and in Rome, there was one son of the gods, one who ruled the, with the world with power, one Lord, and his name was not Jesus. His name was Caesar. And to say otherwise, or to replace Caesar's name with the name of a man who had hung on a cross and died like a criminal, was treason of the worst kind. And yet, the Christians of Rome have not let that deter them. Rather, their willingness to live out their faith here has traveled throughout the entire world. People were talking about it. And that's not an easy task when Roman roads are the only means of communication. We have it a little bit easier now, right? We have, we have Facebook. But in the spirit of honesty, because I promise I'll never lie to you, I've got to tell you that what Paul is doing here is likely a bit of, um, well, schmoozing. <laughs> you see, Paul is buttering the Romans up. And he, he does this in most of the letters. And he's buttering them up. He's complimenting them because he wants something from them. He wants their support. He wants their financial support, particularly, because his plans are to travel to Rome, hang out with them, make sure that they've got the gospel right and everything, and then move on to the western part of the empire where he's not yet traveled to spread the good news. He's, particularly, he has his sights set on what we would call Spain. So basically, Paul is saying, like, listen, friends, I have heard of your faith and how mighty and great it is, and I'd like to give you the opportunity to live that out. Put your money where your mouth is. But he's not lying. He's not practicing trickery. He's just, I don't know, honestly, he's just being a pastor, right? That's what we do. We tell you you're doing good, we invite you to do better, and then we ask you for money. <laughs> don't worry, I'm not going to ask you for money yet. Not today. But you know where the offering plates are. You see, this letter could just as well be my introduction to you all. I, I, I've got to tell you that, that First Fort Pierce has lived in my head for a long time before getting the call telling me that I was coming here. You know, one of my dear friends grew up in this church. A few of my clergy colleagues who have been formative in my career and and my answering the call to ministry came through this church. Your faith has been bragged about to me by all of these people and many others. The fruit of the labor of this church, the fruit of your faith, has been paying off throughout Florida and beyond for many, many years. And I know. I know that the past nine or ten months have been particularly trying. I know that it's been tough and that there's a lot of healing still left to be done. But I got to tell you that I stand here and I am proud of you. I 
proud of the ways that you have persevered. I'm proud of the ways that your faith is still being talked about throughout the Florida Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. I'm proud of the way that you've continued in the face of adversity. I'm proud of your faith, which has been and is continuing to be proclaimed throughout the world. And so my question, my challenge for you and myself included in this is, what would it look like? What would it look like if our faith was lived out even more loudly than it already is? What would it look like if we used every single possible avenue to proclaim our faith? If we used our technology to extend our reach to those who are only ever going to hear about First Church of Fort Pierce and the gospel of Jesus Christ through the screens on their telephones and their tablets? What if our faith was proclaimed proudly and loudly in the places where we spend our time in the community? If the spaces where we hang out became places of worship? What if we became known here at this church on Orange Street for being revolutionaries who actively worked against the negative identities that this world has placed on the populations that live outside of our walls? Because, church, I believe that this is who we're called to be. I believe that Paul's words to the people in Rome reminded them of the great power that they had been given through their allegiance to Christ and how that power was manifesting itself thus far. But they were also, those words were also a call to something much bigger than they could imagine. A call into the unknown call to join in what was going to happen on the western part of the empire. This is what a faith lived loudly does. It's not just a noisy drum cluttering up the air and eventually becoming more white noise in an already loud world. Faith lived loudly is a faith that marches forward to the beat of a drum that declares in the unknown, the unreached, and dark spaces of our world that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord indeed. <clears throat> it declares that Jesus Christ is Lord in every neighborhood of Fort Pierce, that, that Jesus Christ is Lord in the bars, that Jesus Christ is Lord in the gambling establishments, that Jesus Christ is Lord in the schools, in the harbor, and on fishing boats. That Jesus Christ is Lord in our homes and in our streets. Yes, Jesus Christ is Lord where we want him to be Lord. And Jesus Christ is Lord where we don't want him to be Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord here. Jesus Christ is Lord there. Jesus Christ is Lord everywhere. And we'll know, we'll know that we've been loud enough when people that we've never met before say to us, oh, First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, that, that place on Orange Street? Yeah, I know that place. That's the church that loves me. That's the church that loves this city. And that, that's the first impression that we have to make. That's the cover of our book that will entice others to read the rest of the story of this church and the rest of the story of God, of Jesus, and who.
who he says that they are. So let's pray together. Holy God, you are good. And we pray that you would give us a spirit of peace, but a spirit that is loud. Open up our hearts and open up our voices to, to see and to proclaim to the brokenness of our world, to those who just don't know who you are yet, or to those who think they know who you are but have never seen and heard about the real you. Help us to be ambassadors of the real gospel of Jesus. That you came, that you lived a perfect life, that you died a criminal's death, that you rose in power so that we might know how to live, so that we might not die for our trespasses, and that we might go on to live new, resurrected lives here and forevermore that bring you glory and draw the rest of the world to come and read your story. God, we love you. And we thank you for the gift of this church. And we thank you for the world that you've placed it in. Help us to do our job. Help us to proclaim our faith loudly and proudly for all to hear. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and join us in worship.